The poison of corporate controlled information is pervasive within the American media landscape, which makes the Laura Flanders show one of the most important places that we can go to understand how power works, the reality around us, and how to resist. This is Chris Hedges, and I listen to The Laura Flanders Show. Go to patreon.com forward slash The LF Show and become a member. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. The phrase Black Lives Matter began as a hashtag, a media intervention. It has certainly changed the media some. Police killings of black men and women now get more and sometimes better attention than they did when BLM was born half a decade ago. And coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis reflects some of that. There's more attention to state bias, white violence, black death, and the racist criminalization of black bodies. But what about black life and black feelings? If black lives matter, how are journalists and media organizations considering black pain in their coverage? And how are journalists and editors from across the full spectrum of our media in this country thinking about all this. This week, we are introducing some new colleagues. Sarah Lomax-Reese and Mitra Kalita are the drivers of a new network of black and brown owned and led community media organizations about which we are going to hear a whole lot more. Their members are telling these stories differently. They're also telling different stories, for example, about processing the trauma and triggers of black pain in the face of the murder of George Floyd, Dante Wright, Breonna Taylor, and so many more. What they're reporting on, on numbing out, self-care, and mental health, is quite possibly saving lives. I want to know more, so I'm happy to welcome Sarah and Mitra and their member partner, Sierra Hinton, executive director publisher at Scalawag, which she describes as a southern journalism and storytelling organization building solidarity consciousness and community by awakening the popular imagination to new possibilities that spark social change sounds like our kind of people welcome all three i am very happy to have you with us Let's start with you, Sarah. In the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, closing arguments have yet to begin. There's no verdict yet, but there's been a lot of coverage. Am I being over generous to say that there's been at least some change in some of the reporting? I think that what we are seeing is definitely evolution. We are seeing evolution in the criminal justice system, but we're also seeing evolution in the reporting and the the storytelling around these issues, but of course, not enough. Previously, the the police, the power structure was was very much, we did not interrogate or, or really question their authority in the same way. There was this presumption that if a Black person was killed, they deserved it in some way, shape, or form. And, and I think that that would always color the, the, um, the coverage. And so now we're seeing with these videos irrefutable evidence that Black bodies are being brutalized. You can't kind of look away and rationalize it in the same way. And, and that is a reckoning for the media as much as for 
the, 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 the rest of the community. Coming to you, Mitra, I mean, there's been very conscious discussion, both in the run-up to the trial and during the coverage of the trial about showing the tape, the 925, the 9 minutes and 25 seconds um, of that Chauvin knee on, on George Floyd's neck. I felt like people were going through the motions in the sense of talking about it, but they almost always played it. Do you want to talk about that for a second, Mitra? You've worked inside at CNN Digital. You know a little bit about how these decisions get made. I think it's important to note that in some ways, this is the first news event in four years that feels like a collective news event besides Donald Trump. And I think that's important to acknowledge because in the first week of the trial, there very much was what you're describing, which was this playing over and over of these nine minutes. As the, as the trial has evolved, I've seen two things. One is just, again, an acknowledgement for what this video is doing to people of color explicitly to Black Americans. The second was you saw a lot of sympathy for the witnesses themselves who've had to live with decisions that were made. They're haunted by you know one phone call or maybe a phone call that wasn't made. And I don't recall the media becoming as much a part of it in the delivery as it's going on. And that's giving me a little bit of a hope that we're about to change how we cover these news events. Yeah, let me come to you on that, Sierra. I mean, I have seen in some of this coverage a kind of surprise, and maybe I'm being unfair, but particularly in those first days of the trial, when the witnesses, as, as Mitra mentioned, were testifying and you saw the elderly gentleman who was a witness break down on the stand, I felt like a, there was almost like a sense of surprise in some of the commentary, the white commentators. People really seemed to feel a lot about this and, and they were trying to kind of almost get their head around it. How have you reported it? How have you done it differently? And, and would you agree that there was this kind of, I don't know, subtext of, gosh, how surprising, black pain. Yeah, and that's something that permeates through all coverage of black communities, especially by, I think, the mainstream press. And I think that's what happens when you begin to think of folks as a trope or you're not recognizing their humanity. Black folks have feelings just like all other people. It's a little bit, as a Black person, insulting to listen to folks be surprised by this. At Scalawag, because we are Black and queer and woman-led, we don't center whiteness in the same way. And so I think for us, you know, we really try to celebrate all facets of, of Blackness, um, all facets of individuality, whether it is pain or joy, and try to capture that as well as we can by centering actual people and, and relationships with actual people and getting to know folks um, as we do our reporting with them. You've written about the sort of way that the white press typically separates whiteness from wrongness. Like there's sort of the whiteness, but then there's the people who did something wrong. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So I think that comes with a journalism industry that is like dominated by white folks. And something that I've talked about a lot is when uh, George Floyd was murdered this summer and folks were protesting and there were journalists also present at protests and they started to experience violence. There was just this like big uproar within the industry and a cry out for protection of journalists. 
which was just, again, insulting because, um, you know, where was that same empathy and sympathy and, and cry out when it was Black folks being brutalized? Why do we, as journalists, as an industry, consider ourselves separate and apart from people, um, particularly Black people? And what is this presumption of, of wrongness about Blackness. I mean, we know what it is, it's anti-Blackness um, rooted in a white supremacist culture, but how are we seeing this play out in the media? And I think that's a, a clear example. Come into this conversation, Mitra. I mean, as we're talking about sort of the history here of the treatment of Black bodies, a white supremacist culture required a lot of violence and a lot of pain to be inflicted. I mean, in, in slave times, Pain was kind of the accelerant of the industry, of the economy. It required white culture to do a lot of devaluing of black pain. What's it going to take to undo that? And what gives you, if you have any confidence that it can happen? Well, in many ways, our mission at URL Media is actually to shift the lens entirely. I don't believe it's possible to love an audience as your own children unless you feel connected to that audience and you represent that in the leader, not just the leadership of newsrooms, but in the outright ownership of them, right? And, and I think that is an essential part of media diversity that's not talked about. I think the other piece of it is actually to examine our own practices fundamentally that are direct outcomes of the history you describe. What do I mean by that? Every morning, a reporter calls the cop shop, as we call it in the newsroom, and says, what happened overnight? And that sort of sets our news agenda, right? In newsrooms across the country, you could be a three-person operation, you could be CNN. I mean, the police record sets a news agenda in a way that is fundamental to our identity. And we have yet to really upheave ourselves and I would argue technology kind of forced it decades ago, right? In an audience-centric, a user-led revolution, that's really what Black Lives Matter is all about, right? Is, is kind of recentering who we care about, who we are for. And I don't think the media has gone through a parallel reckoning on how we literally do our business every day. You wanna come in on that, Sarah, or, 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 or Sierra, either one? I totally agree with, with Mitra that everything needs to be kind of blown up in terms of how we cover black and brown communities and really coming at all of this from a place of real humanity. Because I think that, that to your point, Laura, the, the fundamental problem with America is, you know, racism in, in my view, that, that has never been adequately dealt with and addressed. And I'm really encouraged that there's a, a, a bill that's winding its way through Congress around reparations to study reparations, not to give reparations, but to study reparations, which is a, is a baby step in the right direction. But if we don't have agency and ownership, which is where URL comes in, where Epicenter, which is Mitra's publication, where Scalawag and Word and all of our partners, there are eight of us, we have to be not just at the table, but it has to be our table. WURD, your radio station, AM, FM, thanks to you both. The only Black-owned talk radio station in a very Black city. 
Talk about the history there. How did that come to be? Well, um, Philly is a very black city. We're about forty-five uh, percent of the of the population, um, and it's had a long legacy of black talk radio in the city of Philadelphia. The flagship black talk station at the time, WHAT, was going out of business, and WURD came up for sale. And um, a, a radio icon named Cody Anderson came to my father and asked him, you know, look, we're about to be without any Black-owned talk radio in the city of Philadelphia after decades of having this powerful platform to advocate uh, for Black people. Would you be willing to buy WURD? My father had the, the financial wherewithal to even consider it. And he, um, he was persuaded by the notion that uh, what Cody Anderson said to him is, you know, Doc, a lot of people will come to you for money. You can't give everyone money, but you can give them a voice. And that's what this radio station represents. And that is what we have stayed true to over. I've been running the station for over 10 years. And that has been our mission is to, you know, create a space. And, and in, in moments like this, having spaces, even if we're just, you know, sharing our grief and our pain and our outrage around the persistence of these issues, it is powerful. It's like an escape valve or a, a release valve. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guests this time are Sarah Lomax-Reese, president and CEO of Philadelphia's own WURD Radio, one of only three African-American-owned and operated talk radio stations in the U.S., veteran journalist and author S. Mitra Kalita, CEO and publisher of Epicenter NYC, a newsletter launched during the pandemic, and both are co-founders of URL Media, a new network of black and brown owned and led community media organizations, with Mitra serving as CEO. My third guest is Sierra Hinton, the executive director and publisher of Scalawag, a movement journalism organization and a member and partner of URL Media. I'm happy to announce both Sarah and Mitra are joining us here on The Laura Flanders Show as new colleagues, so you'll be hearing more from them in future episodes. You're listening to our roundtable on Black, Indigenous, and people of color-centered media, centering on stories that lift up and serve communities from the grassroots. You can watch this episode at our website, lauraflanders.org, and while you're there, take a moment to sign up for our newsletter to receive information on all our web exclusives, including my full uncut interview recently with Adrienne Marie Brown, in which we discussed her book, We Will Not Cancel Us, which addresses the real harm of cancel call-out culture. Next, I ask Sierra Hinton to give us a picture of the state of black and brown owned and led media in the South, and she shares more on Scalawag Magazine's mission. But first, here's Breathe Through the Pain, featuring Connie Stevie by the Guitars Over Guns organization, or GoGo, from their premiere album, The Rain May Be Pouring. GoGo is a nonprofit based in Miami and Chicago that delivers unique after-school arts-based youth mentorship programs designed to creatively engage and empower vulnerable youth to take control of their life paths. Here's Breathe Through the Pain. Eric Garner, George Floyd, murdered by the cops and they took away their voice. Stephen Clark, Philando Castile, I don't know how I'm really supposed to feel. Breonna Taylor, Tony McDay. I pray one day we can heal from the pain. Elijah McClain, I gotta say their names. Karen Gaines, some will never be the same. Tamir Rice, Oscar Grant, 
Michael Brown, Sandra Bland Loyal to the soil when they died on this land Some things I will never understand Freddie Gray, Mercy Mack Black America been under attack Some rather spread lies than tell facts Watch what you speak on the phone, the lines tap What's the state of black and brown owned and led media in the U.S. South, which is also a very black place? It is uh, shifting. And I actually think because of social media and the power of um, folks to have their own platform, more and more folks are joining the space and understanding that it doesn't have to stop on Twitter, right? They can create other means of producing their own media. Scalawag is a movement journalism organization. Movement journalism is not new. Ida B. Wells, Marvell Cook, there are journalists who have been practicing um, movement journalism for decades, but here recently we have really tried to name that practice. And more and more we're seeing folks both in and out of the South really start to align with the practice of movement journalism, which is journalism in service of liberation. I know I find completely fresh content there every time I go. I mean, fresh to me and to the media environment in which I'm constantly buried. For example, what have you been covering this week? What have you been writing about recently? You and, and your colleagues at Scalawag. We focus on like Southern politics, arts and soul, um, and we have a vertical called Race in Place. And so our work is really expansive. And I would say that a really good example of movement journalism in particular, one of our freelancers, her name is Antoinette Kerr. She wrote a story with indigenous communities in North Carolina about um, missing and murdered indigenous women. And that was something that was going Going on, and there was a lot of advocacy happening within Indigenous communities, but there wasn't a lot of um, conversation about it in mainstream and public media. So she worked with these women who have been doing this work for a very long time to get this story out. It actually at first was not going to be placed with Scalawag. It was placed with a mainstream outlet and they deprioritized it and killed the story. And so she rehomed it with us. Once we published that story, it was picked up by NPR and so many other of these mainstream media outlets and was really able to push that story to the forefront and shift the narrative and get more and more people talking about it um, and move it into the status quo, which we know is how stories tend to become important, right? And then of course we see this week, Deb Holland calling for there to be a council on uh, investigating uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. And of course, like, I'm not saying that like Scalawag story is the reason that that happened, right? But this, it, it is a part of why it became um, important and a part of the mainstream conversation. Mitra, you could have stayed at CNN, you write for Fortune. Why URL media? Why is it so important to you right now? And tell our audience a little bit more about how it's going to work and how it's going to help the members. So after 21 years in mainstream media, I didn't want to write about our communities anymore. I wanted to write for them, but I also wanted to write from a place of triumph. And I, in many ways, draw inspiration from Scalawag, where if you read closely, there are no stories of black and brown victims in Scalawag. Everything is with an eye towards ultimate triumph 
action and a level of depth that is so needed right now. Um, and I also think that the role of communities in our own partnership in journalism and how we practice is really vital. And it, it just felt like URL media because our outlets work in service to their communities. We are literally helping people navigate housing decisions and food insecurity or when your stimulus check is coming. I mean, literally kind of the utility of life with an eye towards uplifting, respecting, and loving your life, right? This is not a new concept that Sarah and I came up with. It has been practiced for years by media outlets in service to their communities. Um, and just one other thing I would add there is that, you know, my outlet Epicenter was launched um, in the middle of the pandemic where it felt like government was absent from our community in Queens. It was like, does anybody know we're here, we're hurting. We launched with this desire to connect people to each other to perhaps be some of the answer. And I think that's a really big role for a journalist to actually get out of the way sometimes mm -hmm. and say people also need to find each other. Now let's enable some of the solutions that might stem uh, from, from that ability to connect with others. So I'm going to ask you to do a dangerous thing, which is to list your members. Uh, and it's always frightening not to leave someone out. So we, we will help you if necessary. But you want to list the members of URL? Our eight partners are WURD, Epicenter, mm -hmm. Scalawag, The Haitian Times, TBN24, which is a Bangladeshi live streaming channel, Scrollstack, South Asian-based platform, Documented New York, which is a... Uh, texting WhatsApp and newsletter service for um, immigrants in New York City, and Palabra, a Latino freelancer network that was founded by the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. You have an aspiration not just to improve our media uh, landscape, which is to make our country smarter, but also to thrive at the level of the bottom line. And WURD, Sarah, you look calm and cool and collected and happy, but I know this is not easy. And you've all written about how hard it is always to maintain independent media outlets, something I know just a little bit about. It's also joyful and you do it anyway, but URL media is supposed to help. How will that work, <laughs> Sarah? Um, I am intimately aware of the pain points and the gaps that can exist um, as, as you're trying to, to, to grow. And so a fundamental component of URL media is, um, and, and Mitra and I as co-founders and, uh, entrepreneurs who have media organizations within the URL network, we are creating solutions that we need for, for our organizations. And so um, sharing content, you know, like expanding the, the, the universe of content that, that we can feature on our platforms um, amidst the, these eight uh, organizations. So sharing content um, among ourselves and sharing it out to the, the broader uh, journalism world and just the world in general. So, so amplification and distribution are also challenges that that we are addressing through through URL for our our members. But the other really important piece is money. Part of the URL uh, structure is to share revenues that are that are hopefully going to be additive to our partners' um, bottom line. So we we are working with high performing black and brown owned and led media organizations. So they already have revenues. They have 
uh, audience and all of that stuff. And, and as a way of collaborating and connecting our and, and joining our, our efforts, we believe that we are able to increase and the, the revenue generating opportunities for all of the, the media organizations. And that will allow us all to move from kind of survival to kind of being leaders and innovators and cutting edge in this media, media space. Mm. It's not easy to do the work that you do. So talk a little bit about the, the joy that comes from so much complexity. As a Black queer woman myself, it's just an honor and a delight to be able to work with folks who share my identities um, and share like identities and really give folks a space um, and work with them to have a space to tell their own stories in a way that unfortunately has not happened traditionally um, in media. There's so much pain and it's usually the pain that gets highlighted, but like there's also just so much joy in being Black and being queer and being a woman. Um, And we want to hold space and honor that too. And that's just, that's really a part of like honoring folks' full humanity, right? Um, And understanding that um, as not just the like terrible things that happen in life, it's also the really good things. And we, and that's a part of our history and our future as well. Um, and those things deserve the same amount of space, if not more. We have to leave it there, but this is not the last you're going to be hearing from Mitra and Sarah and Sierra and everybody at URL Media and their friends. Um, but for now, I want to thank you for being here and encourage people to check out all the outlets we've mentioned. Uh, we'll be back in just a bit. Independent media bring issues to the boil, mainstream inhale the steam. That's what independent editor Phyllis Kriegel of New Directions for Women told me back in the 1990s, and it remains true today. Sierra Hinton of Scalawag talks about the reporting her publication did, looking at murdered and missing indigenous women and girls at the local level, and how that story traveled from the local to the national, where it prompted policy in D.C. Well, there's another story in Scalawag that I hope will have the same impact. It's by Mab Segrist, longtime anti-racist author and organizer and contributor to this show. Mab takes a detailed look at the men and women from North Carolina, one state, and their role in the January 6th insurrection in Washington at the Capitol. What she finds is a group of anti-abortion activists and long-ignored white supremacists and militia organizers and a whole load of military-grade weapons distributed to a rather dubiously elected local sheriff courtesy of a federal program. There's more to it, but my point is where the national story puts a president and a lot of far-off lawsuits at the center, MABS puts local people there, both as the solution as well as the problem. She ends by pointing out that a previous generation of violent racists was put behind bars by action locally. That's what independent media can do, put power and responsibility and possibility in local hands. Now, what do you think would happen if we all inhaled that steam?
For more information on my guests, along with a suggested reading list and additional episodes featuring community-led media initiatives centered on shifting narratives to empower change like URL Media and their partners, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. While you're there, make a difference and join our team by becoming a member. We don't take any funding from corporations or the government. But you can help. Commit to a monthly donation of just $3, $5 or more. Think of it as a magazine or news subscription. It's listeners like you who fund this programming and who we are honored to serve. And it's your membership that makes it possible for us to continue to spotlight the solutions of tomorrow for free on TV and radio across the country. So go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and sign up today. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cothran, Mercedes Grostiaga, Jeannie Hopper, Nat Needham, Charlotte Carpenter, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Ryan Holtz, Sabrina Artel, and Jeanette Hernandez. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo, Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>